Hello, humans. My name is Jesse, aka The Bizzle, and welcome to Bizzlecast episode 13. This is a return uh, to a little bit more academic Bizzlecast, but like with the Taoism podcast uh, back in episode 4, we try and make it as fun and relatable as possible. And while this seems like an academic subject on the surface, or just an academic subject, it has wide reverberations throughout our world and in our own worlds today because my friend and scholar Yarek Hernandez, who is finishing up his PhD at Temple University in the religion department where I myself studied and received a master's and was also in Islamic studies like him, he's a converted Muslim and he writes primarily about Islam in Spain post the 1492 exile when For the most part, Jews and Muslims were expelled from Spain by uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, the king and queen, but also by the Inquisition of the Spanish church. However, there were so many Muslims throughout the country, especially in the south, they weren't able to get rid of them all, and they became what were called moriscos, which are basically Muslims who had converted to Christianity, but were still considered Muslims by the orthodoxy of the Spanish church and were killed or tortured or um, forced to reconvert or forced to leave. Inyark focuses on these people's lives in the 1500s, but is also an expert on the Islamic period in general, which began in 711 with the first conquest of Spain by Islam. This is a great podcast because it is in the super heady topics category, and it is also very related to what I used to um, study is my master's program, which was the relation between Jews and Muslims in Spain, which was quite a good relationship for the most part, especially in the early years, and led to a sharing of poetry and literature and theology and spirituality and all sorts of stuff that reverberated on down through the years, especially in Judaism, but in Islam as well. And so Yark was the perfect guy to bring in for this, and I think you're, you're really going to enjoy the podcast. I, I mostly let him talk um, most of the time, which is unusual for Bizzlecast, uh, you know, I I'm I'm always talking even in my interviews, but you know, he's just so smart and articulate and the stories are just fabulous. We also get into stuff like the Crusades and other sort of big picture historical issues involving Muslims, Jews, and Christians, which you may have heard about, but I guarantee you're going to learn a bunch of new stuff. I certainly did, and I studied this shit for a while. So look forward to learning more about Yarek and hearing from him. His Twitter handle is at Yarek, which is spelled Y-A-R-E-H-K, and he is a scholar and a brilliant dude. Hope you enjoy the interview, and here we go.
All right, Bizzlecast listeners, I am here with my friend and uh, former colleague, Yark Hernandez. Um, we studied in the Department of Religion at Temple University. Um, I got my master's there. He getting getting his PhD there, um, and we became you know good good friends and and really are into a lot of the same stuff, both you know subject related and unsubject related. And he's a great guy. So Yarek, welcome to the Bizzlecast. Tell us a little about yourself. Well, uh, thank you first for having me. Um, this is. Uh interesting experience and a good opportunity to share some of my ideas yeah uh what would you like to know i I think i do a little bit better with some more guidance sure (laughs) um well i guess um you know a little bit about your background where you're from um how you ended up in philly you can talk about past education if you want um but you know i guess kind of a, a, a short narrative about sort of how you got to to this place um, and then you can cap it off talking about sort of what uh, your work is uh, right now that you're working on or have been working on, I should say, for a few years now. Uh, so I'm originally from New York. Um, I am the child of uh, a Dominican immigrant mother uh, who came during the late 60s. Um, and I was born in the late 70s myself and kind of lived through the 80s in New York City, kind of transitioning from the, uh, the large urban blight in New York during the late 70s to kind of this rejuvenation of New York City during the 90s. Um, uh, a little bit about my education. I uh, studied uh, as an undergrad at City, New York, City University of New York uh, at City College up in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And uh, I majored in the Middle East history. Originally, I wanted to do uh, East African history, focusing on Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa. Uh, but the closest person who uh, was sort of like an expert in the area was uh, Beth Barron, uh, who's now at the CUNY Graduate Center. And she's also uh, one of the editors or used to be one of the editors at the Middle East Studies Journal. Um, and she did Egypt. She did 20th century Egypt and focused on women's history and did like women's studies in the Egyptian context. Hmm. Uh, and that got me into uh, doing work in the Middle East and doing work on Islam and uh, while I was at City, I converted to Islam uh, when I was 22, uh, kind of at the tail end of 21, going into 22. And uh, I've been Muslim ever since, about the end of 98, uh, the beginning of 99. Uh, lived through uh, New York City during the pre and post 9-11 era mm. and moved to uh, Philadelphia in 2005 uh, with my ex-wife, who was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, doing uh, teaching English to foreign students. And uh, once we got divorced, I decided to stick around. I did my master's uh, in education at, at Penn and uh, traveled afterwards uh, with a good friend that we share, uh, <laughs> Iggy uh, Araujo. And, Iggy! Um, uh, Iggy and I went to uh, Los Angeles together to teach for the uh, LAUSD, the uh, Los Angeles Unified School District. Excellent. Uh, we were there for about a year, and I got laid off and kind of went through some trials and tribulations of like work-related stuff uh, and was invited back to come teach Spanish for the School District of Philadelphia in October of '09, And I moved back, worked uh, for the school district for a couple of years, met my, my current wife. Uh, we were working together, and um, at the tail end of 2011, uh, 
the school that we're working at was closed and I just had to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I really want, have always dreamed about pursuing a PhD and uh, applied to the Temple program, um, which is the only program that I applied to actually. And uh, after visiting with uh, Dr. Terry Ray and Dr. Blankenship several times who at the time were the chair and the head of graduate studies respectively, I was admitted and I've been at Temple uh, ever since. Um, heading into my fifth year, I'm all but dissertation, so I'm a PhD candidate in uh, Islamic studies in the Department of Religion. Uh, and my focus in uh, within the sphere of Islamic studies is mm-hmm. uh, 16th century Spain. And, oh yeah, uh, the baby. work that I do. That's right. So the work <laughs> that I do is actually like um, really about a quote unquote crypto Muslim uh, minority. Uh, during the 16th century in Spain. So I work on uh, in Morisco studies, and right now my PhD is focused on uh, Islamic religious performance as uh, a type of um, oppositional identity, mm-hmm. uh, essentially against state and ecclesiastical authorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm looking at the performance of Islam itself as a, as a form of opposition to the state, um, especially under the Inquisition, under uh, state pressure, uh, under legal pressure. Um, so I'm really interested in Muslim minorities and identity formation. So as Yark um, mentioned, he is very interested in and has done a lot of work on studying and writing about um, Islam's presence in Spain and sort of the legacy. That's one of the first things we bonded on, I think, almost immediately when we established that we were both interested in it. Um, now, when I came to Temple to study, I originally was going to do a PhD as well, and I was going to be focused on um, Islamic Spain, although um, my work was more on sort of the first couple hundred years of Islamic rule in Spain when they really dominated the whole Iberian Peninsula and Islam in general across three continents was really at its peak. Um, and Spain was sort of this interesting little cosmopolitan, uh, you know, spot that was both, you know, geographically removed from a lot of the Islamic empires, um, but also very influential both at the time and moving forward. But nevertheless, uh, we were both very interested in Spain. Um, I am neither Muslim nor Spanish, um, so, you know, but it's just, it's 2015 people and, uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm going to ask uh, Yark um, about his decision to convert to, to Islam. Uh, while I am Jewish and have a lot of ties to Israel, I am, you know, pretty liberal in my politics. I think uh, Bizzlecast listeners, if you've listened to a number of my podcasts, you know that I try not to be preachy. This is going to be an interesting podcast because we're going to talk about politics without trying to be too um polemic, I guess I would say. Um, but that's part of the reason I chose Yark for this is because he has a very measured way of looking at each uh, issue and each subject and each topic uh, on its own and not making a kind of sweeping generalizations, which especially when you talk about the Middle East and, you know, Israel, Palestine, Islam, etc., you know, people tend to go into extreme mode on one, one of the ways. So he's one of my favorite people to talk with on these issues. And so... So anyways, so uh, I 
um, mentioned earlier that Yarek and I am in, you know, an admittedly small religion department, or relatively small at Temple University, at least small for a big public school. Um, Yarek was one of the people I was uh, initially drawn to because we had we, uh, we had similar interests, and he was he was just a cool guy. Um, and because I was an Islamic studies guy, and I was one of the only non-Muslims who was like heavily Islamic studies. Um, I know there was uh, uh, Mary Beth um, and a couple others, uh, but you know I, I really wanted to make effort to you know, immerse myself in all the different cultures that were there. But as I mentioned, Yark and I are both very interested in Islamic Spain. I'm interested in sort of pre-exile Islamic Spain, uh, 1492. Um, I think it's fair to say you are interested in post-exile. Well, I, I'm actually, I mean, I do, uh, I'm interested in the history of Al-Andalus from the very beginning. Um, but, because, I mean, to, to understand what happened uh, post-1492, you really have to understand what came before, of course. So, uh, the entire history is, is open for me to talk about. I feel pretty confident in, in talking about the entire history. Uh, but, of course, I, am in, I, I seek expertise in, in from 1492 to about 1614. So that's really where my area is, but I, I can talk about the rest of it too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, so me uh, being Jewish, I'm sort of from a liberal secular background, but still Jewish, spend a lot of time in Israel, have Israeli family. And so, um, you know, I wouldn't say I have a lot of like anti-Arab people in my family, but their politics are a little bit more centrist when it comes to these sorts of issues as opposed to mine, um, which is very common among American Jews. They're very, very liberal on every issue except for Middle Eastern ones, and in that it's kind of split, I would say, um, in terms of the approach. The good news is younger Jewish people are, are much more what I would consider sort of educated or at least open-minded when it comes to these issues. So I think that's a good trend moving forward. However... Um, I spent uh, 2000, 2001, the year, living in Israel. It was during the – basically, I got there right as the second intifada was starting. So there was bombs and fighting everywhere all the time. And then I got to college in 2001, and two weeks into college, 9-11 happened. So um, I, I was really forced at this very sort of crucial – juncture and age to to deal with some of these issues on an even higher level than I dealt with them. And I just couldn't take the hatred from all the sides. And so I did what, you know, I always tell people to do, which is don't worry about your opinions and your and your emotions, just get more educated. So I really, as an undergraduate, even though I was a philosophy major and studied a lot of Eastern philosophy, started getting really into Islamic history um, and actually Islamic uh, mysticism, which is called Sufism, um, which is also a big part of um, uh, Andalusia or Al-Andalus, which is um, Islamic Spain, uh, so really sucked me into the religion of Islam. I was already very interested in the history and the people, but in terms of religion, that really sucked me in because I hadn't been exposed to a ton of of mystical um, ideas. And so, you know, when I decided to go back to grad school, I really knew sort of what I I thought I wanted to study, um, which was kind of the Jewish Muslim relationship um, during the first few centuries of 
um, Al-Andalus, the Islamic rule of Spain, and the lessons that I think are, are very apparent and numerous um, in terms of Jewish-Muslim relations today, or even Christian-Muslim or Christian-Jewish relationships today, uh, in sort of this, a, a very helpful model, almost, of you know, uh, not just tolerance, but acceptance, and, and in some point, uh, places, coexistence and sharing of cultures and ideas. Um, you know, just as an example, and I'm going to throw it to Yarek, his uh, basic thoughts on this. Um, you know, Maimonides, who's considered the greatest Jewish thinker and writer, theologically and philosophically, the last thousand years, who came from Spain, ended up having to go to Egypt for sort of political reasons, that would have never the stuff he wrote about, which now informs everything about modern Judaism, would have never happened had he not been in the Islamic context in Spain. And you know, there's lots of Jewish poets and theologians who also um, interacted and you know presented ideas, and, and there was just lots of sharing between those two religions. I'm interested to hear um, you know sort of a, a a little bit about how you um, well. A, any reactions to what I just said? Uh, B, um, you know, sort of how you decided uh, to go into the period of, I think you said 16th century Spain, um, as opposed to like early, you know, I guess we would call earlier um, periods when Muslims were still openly living and ruling uh, in Spain. Um, well, just kind of as a reaction to uh, what you had just said um, about the, the sort of what was going on on the ground. Um, of course, like there are many different periods in the history of Al-Andalus and uh, there have been different points where there was more coexistence than, than not. Uh, but there was also struggle and strife and definitely um, the major issues related to, to identity and sort of like religious position um, Judaism held sort of this, this intermediary space between Islam and Christianity uh, for many, for much of the history of Al-Andalus. Um, Jewish folks, you know, the, the Sephardic folk in Spain were able to ascend uh, and in certain principalities in certain times were able to do really, really well. Um, but there were also sort of like backlashes against them as well. Although, because they were in this sort of like intermediary space, the, it, should be, it should be noted that a lot of the struggle was really between uh, Christians and Muslims. Uh, that even when there were large Christian, I mean, there was a point that should be said, said right off the bat is that Muslims never, and folks have argued this back and forth, but the numbers just don't tell that Muslims never reached a majority on the peninsula. Uh, and because of their minority status, uh, and, and when they were in positions of power, they had to maintain a balance between their Muslim subjects, their Christian subjects, and also their Jewish subjects. Um, the Jewish population in Iberia had been there for a very, very long time. And there is evidence to suggest that, strong evidence actually, to suggest that at the initial invasion, um, the, the Jewish population was taken into the confidence of the Muslims. Uh, and very early on, given positions of power, um, some entire towns were left under the, the, the leadership of uh, Jewish folk on the ground as the Muslim armies continued on their way into southern France. Uh, and so this, the place, the, the special position that Judaism held, uh, not only as um, 
a minority, a religious minority that, or at least initially, a religious minority that was larger than the Muslim invaders or the Muslim conquest, however you want to phrase um, the, the sort of initial conquest, um, their, their position in knowing what was happening on the ground was crucial to really setting up a system that allowed for the perpetuation of uh, what had already been going on, right? So that sort of like proto-feudalism and sort of the, the use of the Visigothic ruling class. All of these things, I think, were facilitated by uh, the Jewish folk on the ground who knew the landscape, who were able to really serve as advisors, crucial advisors, in my opinion, to the Muslim conquest of Iberia. Um, and also as, as intermediaries from, from Jump Street from the very, very beginning. Uh, and so this, this place there of sort of like the, the ancient nature uh, of Judaism or kind of like the, the, the oldness of Judaism in Iberia really helped to facilitate, in my opinion, uh, Muslim governance and also the conquest of such a vast territory in so short a time. Uh, so, this, so, the, so from the very beginning, I think that the fate of Islam and, and, and uh, Judaism in Iberia were, were intertwined. Um, whereas Christianity was sort of this, this, this oppositional other, uh, in most cases, to both Islam and Judaism. Although there were periods um, where the Christians were integrated into the larger corpus of, of what was going on as well. Um, and you have that in the case of the Mozarabs and uh, sort of like the, the Christian population who sort of was, was Arabized. Um, and Judaism itself was, was Arabized in a sense. Um, Arabic was a language of government and also the language of the people um, with, with Hebrew and Romance languages forming the sort of uh, secondary and tertiary languages that were spoken and, and were utilized on the ground. But Arabic was dominant and the closeness of Arabic to Hebrew obviously facilitated you know, Jews, uh, Jewish folk on the ground there to, to be able to transition into key positions in government and state. Right. Yeah. So... You know, uh, first of all, I agree with everything you said um, and identify with everything you said. And uh, I'm going to get back to that because it kills me that uh, Jews don't acknowledge this or some Jews don't acknowledge this. Um, just historically, very quickly, uh, you can correct my dates. I think I got this right. So I believe sort of the official conquest of Spain, which was then to become Al-Andalus, was in 711 by the Umayyads, who are from Syria. They're basically an exiled dynasty, caliphate dynasty from Syria. Um, I don't know if they were the exiles in the first wave. I can't remember. But essentially, from 711 until 1086-ish, which is around the time of Maimonides and why he had to run away, was was sort of the Umayyad period, where you had descendants of, of... Arabs from Syria, who were by standards that, and even today, very, very liberal. I mean, there was wine, there was homosexuality that we know about that's documented. There was a mixing of different peoples and religions. Um, I, I mean, it was progressive even by today's standards, or probably more than half the countries in the world. And I don't mean liberal in the Western sense. I mean liberal in the sort of socially, uh, in terms of social acceptance of, of different ideas and, and, and cultures and ways of life. And then around 1086, there came to be major invasions of the Berbers, who were um, 
Muslims, but not Arabs from North Africa. And from a Jewish perspective and from a political perspective in Spain, things pretty much started going downhill from then until the official expulsion of Jews and Muslims in 1492. Um, I know that's a huge generalization of history, but am I am I nearly on point there? Um. Well, uh, so, so from um, 711, which was the crossing, initial crossing, um, uh, Tariq Ibn Ziyad was the sort of captain of these troops, crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of legendarily burned his ships. I don't know if that actually happened. But he crosses the strait and burns his ships and uh, crosses with force that has been estimated from about 8,000 to about 12,000 on the highest mm-hmm. um, against a much larger Visigothic force. Um, uh, there was assistance from the very beginning um, from Visigoth- Visigothic nobility who were anti-Roderick. Uh, who was the then king, also in Spanish, uh, known as Rodrigo, which is where we get the name Rodriguez, a very Visigothic name. Mm. Um, and so they cross over and they are able to, within the span of uh, six to nine months, really sweep across. And so the initial invasion was actually during the tail end of the Umayyad period in Syria. Uh, right, the Caliphate right. ruled from Damascus. Uh, in 750, though, in the late 740s, uh, that's when you have the Abbasid Revolution and also the fleeing of Abdurrahman I, who was the last uh, descendant of the Umayyads, uh, the prince who his, fled. He got his butt kicked in, 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 in Egypt or something, right, on the battlefields? Or they he, just, they I, just got cornered? He was, was, he was run of runoff. <laughs> right. every place where he went he wasn't really able to find uh, a hospitable sort of environment for himself he sure. was able to kind of gain some assistance from uh, some of the nobility in North Africa closer to uh, Algeria and Morocco modern day Algeria and Morocco um, and from there was invited by some of the nobility to cross over into Iberia uh, and when he crossed over, he took about five years to really solidify his position. Mm. And then the Umayyad period in Al-Andalus really begins with um, Abdurrahman I around 750. Mm-hmm. Um, and from 750 to about uh, the late 900s, you kind of have the height. You have like the Umayyad period proper. Uh, and then you have the height of the Umayyad period with the establishment of the caliphate under Abdurrahman III, um, a direct descendant of Abdurrahman I, who crossed over. Um, And he reestablishes the Umayyad Caliphate, and it was kind of during his reign that, actually, uh, the reign territorially, uh, there had been different, there had been kind of like a fluctuation of uh, what territories were governed by the Muslims, but during Abdurrahman III's reign as the first caliph uh, in Al-Andalus, uh, he really solidifies power. Power really becomes central to Cordoba. Um, he kind of puts down rebellion to cross the board. He does a really good job of centralizing the government. Um, and then it kind of all goes to hell within, you know, about five or six generations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, so from sort of the mid-900s until the end of the 11th century when the Berber invasion came, things were already starting to look not great. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. even with the, the Berber invasions, um, the 
so there was like a the taifa period or the party kings who came after the fall of the Umayyad or the Cordovan uh, Caliphate. And so the party kings were basically a period of time where there was sort of fitna and chaos, mm-hmm. uh, but also a flourishing of, like a reflourishing of culture. So similar to what was going on or what could be described or what has historically been attributed to like pre-Renaissance and Renaissance Italy, where there were principalities and sort of like these city-states that were uh, fostering poetry and art and sculpture and these sorts of things. So there was like a reflourishing of art and culture during this initial period of the Taifa kings. Um, and then the first Berber force of the Murabitun, they basically sort of, they themselves were coming out of the sort of like the Moroccan hinterland. They were very much about um, I mean, the, the, the name, the Murabitun, comes from uh, this idea of folks secluding themselves in remote places and, you know, becoming a marabout, becoming, they were initially uh, very, like, a, they were sort of like a Sufi order. Mm-hmm. Um, both groups, both the Murabitun and also the Almoravids, um, were, were very much about kind of uh, returning Islam to, like, the sort of, like, pristine religious practice. They were strict Malachites. Uh, following the Maliki Mathab. Ah, the Malachites. uh, One of the four um, (laughs) schools of Islamic jurisprudence in in Sunnism, in Sunni Islam. And so in both waves, first under the Murabitun and also the Almoravids, were very much about returning Islam to its pristine nature. But they both also sort of went into decline when they, the idea is when they they got sucked into the, the, the treasures of Andalusi culture, right? They got sucked into the, the pleasures, I should say, of yeah. Andalusi culture and they became soft, right? So this idea that Al-Andalus was, was very different than the, the mountains and sort of like the arid areas uh, where a lot of the Berber tribes came from and that uh, Al-Andalus and its lush sort of greenery in, in certain places softened uh, these warrior princes into uh, sort of libertines, which is kind of like the sort of the romantic mm. version of all these things that happened. Mm. Um, but in reality, what was happening from 1085 up until 1492 was the consolidation of power and centralization of government in the Christian territories. Um, and so the, the Christian push forward down, especially kind of like in different steps around uh, 1050 to 1085, you get some encroachment, you get the lessening of Muslim territory. And by, but by 1212, um, in Las Navas de Tolosa, you have a sweeping victory by the Christians. The Christians are uniting um, under one particular banner. They are, they are calling the Crusades. They're calling for Crusades in Iberia proper. Yep. Uh, and uh, with Christian in- movement, uh, conquest from the north, you definitely then have the further pushing down of Muslims, although they were, there were Muslim vassals who stayed um, and became what was called Mudejar, and the Mudejar is a, is a, was used as a sort of like a derogatory term, it was a pejorative, kind of describing the Muslims there as being domesticated mm-hmm. by the Christians, um, and essentially under the Mudejar period, uh, well, kind of like under Mudejarismo, or like the period or the Muslims who stayed in Christian territory, they were seen as kind of like lesser. They kind of 
were given, um, and this is kind of like anachronistic, of course, but there was like a second-class citizenship. Ideas about citizenship really weren't being articulated at this time, so it is a bit anachronistic. But they were treated lesser than the Christian subjects of these Christian kingdoms, of course, um, which is also not to say that Christians got some sort of like fair shake under the Muslims either, not always. But it does, it does speak to sort of what was happening and how uh, under Muslim rule, there was freedom of religion for Christians and Jews, although there were regulations placed on the expansion of Christianity and the mm-hmm. expansion of Judaism. But folks in communities that were already there and established were, were allowed to continue, uh, whereas under Christianity, there was definitely, um, there was definitely uh, oppression or suppression of, Christ- of Judaism and Islam, um, which is not to paint the Christians as sort of like this, these, the bad guys in the, in the, in the narrative, but um, definitely speaks to kind of like foreshadows what then happens uh, in 1390 uh, with sort of like forced conversions of yeah. forced mass conversions in the, in the 1390s yeah. uh, of, of Jews in, uh, in, in Iberia, uh, in, in what would become Spain. And also then in 1492, in March, the expulsion orders uh, of all of the non-converted Jewish population uh, which which definitely sort of like foreshadowed then the future expulsion of the Muslims who had been forced to be converted uh, from 1609 to 1614. Uh, and so in answer to kind of like to backtrack a little bit to the, your initial question as to what uh, attracted me to studying um, the Morisco century, the 16th century in, in Spain, um, I originally read a book called uh, Til, Til, Till the End of the Earth, um, I might be getting the, the title a little bit wrong, but Till the End of the Earth by Stanley Hordes, who was writing about crypto-Judaism in New Mexico. Um, and the idea about crypto-Jewish practice in the Americas was fascinating to me. Um, and it was in a course about ethnicity and race and religion. I'm, I'm interested in both of those things. And in that book, Stanley Hordes has a brief chapter where he talked about um, what was happening in Iberia at the time. And he mentioned the Moriscos as being crypto-Muslims, and that kind of really got me interested in them. And that's sort of where, where my study began. So from the very, my very first uh, semester at Temple, I started uh, reading and writing about the Moriscos and I've been working on them ever since. All right. So you are actually taking me exactly uh, for the most part where I wanted to go. Because um, I wanted to ask, or I wanted to talk about kind of the Crusades a little bit. Um, I know this is a touchy subject, but I, Based on who it seems is listening to my podcast, I think most people will be open-minded about this. So, have you ever seen the movie Kingdom of Heaven by Ridley Scott? Yes. You see the original cut or the director's cut? Do you know? Um, I'm not sure. I saw whatever cut was probably playing on cable. Okay, so it's probably, <laughs> so it's the, right. probably the original. Right. I don't think I've ever seen the, the director's cut. Okay, so I, I do love Ridley Scott. There's a lot. There's movies of his I don't like. There's movies of his I love. Um, I, it got panned when it was in the theater, so I was disappointed because I had wanted to see it just because I knew it was an epic about the Crusades. Then it got panned, and but then they released the director's cut. And at the same time, both uh, people on the Christian right and Muslim right attacked the movie. So I'm going, oh, this is juicy. I got to see what's going on here. And my friend... The director's cut especially, and I think this was part of the problem, was because of the studios, um, you know, anti-Islam or just pro-Christian attitude or whatever, 
cut out a lot of the stuff about the Muslims from the Muslims' perspective. But I have watched the movie many times. Um, part of what I do with my podcast is I've started doing audio commentaries. And I did an audio commentary on that movie. I love Kingdom of Heaven. And the Catholic Church, I mean, the Knights Templar in particular, but the Catholic Church in general comes off looking it's so horribly barbaric. And the Muslims more civilized and advanced in every single way. And it's little things throughout the movie. There's obviously just the constant Christian slaughter of Muslim civilians. And then when you get to hang out with Salah Adin and his people, you know, it's like they've got great medicine. The Christians always want their doctors. And there's this great scene where they pull out a chest of ice and the big Christian bad guy doesn't even know what ice is, has never seen ice before. Um, it, you know, it really just for the most part it makes the Muslims look extremely honorable. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's interesting whether people didn't see it just because the non-director's cut wasn't that great or whether, you know, the word was that it was a little pro-Muslim or, or it's certainly anti-Catholic church in the, in the Middle Ages. Um, it, it really makes them look absolutely horrible and, and, and barbaric. And, you know, the bottom line is if we take the period of sort of the middle uh, of of the Middle Ages, right, in Europe, so we'll say like 8th century through, I don't know, 12th or 13th century, the reality is from almost every, almost any way we can measure what we would call quote-unquote civilization all the way from political and military power, but art and architecture, and poetry and music and um, uh, medicine and science and mathematics and every major measurable during that period, which correlates somewhat with the golden age of Spain, although not completely, the Islamic world was way ahead. And, and, I, and I mean to get here also as a Jewish person. And this goes back to what you were talking about um, about the relationship, the, uh, mostly, you know, very positive relationship, mutually beneficial between Jews and Muslims in Spain, which kills me that people don't have historical context, which is that, yes, the Jews and the Muslims in the last hundred years, in, in some cases, are, are, haven't gotten along exactly. But, you know, if you take, you know, Ottoman Empire all the way back to the Roman Empire, for the most part, Jews, it's pretty well established, we're better off in Muslim nations than they were in Christian nations where they weren't even considered citizens. I mean, you know this, that even though there was the jizya tax, you know, even though Jews got taxed for being Jews, basically, in Muslim lands in some cases, they were counted as citizens. You couldn't just murder Jews. In Europe, for the most part, you could, during the Middle Ages, just kill entire Jewish villages, and the Crusaders did so um, regularly throughout the Crusades. And so, to bring it back to Kingdom of Heaven, I was doing the commentary, and I realized after like 20 or 30 minutes that I, you know, I was very much taking sort of an anti-Catholic church stance, not modern anti-Catholic church, but at the time time. And, uh, you know, I had to sort of confess in my doing the commentary that being Jewish, that I was biased because it's well established that during the, um, during Salah Adin's attempt to recapture uh, Jerusalem, the Jews for the most part were completely on the Muslim side um, and wanted the Muslims to come because of how horribly the Christians were treating them. So I know, you know, you're, you're a very sensitive guy to sensitive needs to people, so you don't need to get overtly political. I'm not trying to be polemical here. I'm just trying to be honest. And I, I just, you know, I, I guess the you can comment on any of these things about the Crusades. We can talk about the Inquisition in Spain, which is related, which is something you know about. 
Um, so let me frame it historically, I guess, although you can comment on anything, which frame it historically, you know, even when the Christians, even when the uh, uh, Reconquista was happening and the Christians were retaking Spain and other Christian lands back from Muslims, you know, Muslims still held the upper hand in a lot of, you know, sciences and, and, and technology and stuff like that, and even warfare strategy. And yet the Christians ultimately got back what they wanted. Um, I'm curious from a sort of put on your historian hat, how that sort of happened in Spain. Was it just corruption? Was it laziness by the Muslim rulers? Like why, why couldn't they hold on to it ultimately in Spain? This is a, <laughs> this is actually a question I, I, I answered during my uh, comp defense because uh, Dr. Blankenship was pushing me on this and he, he wanted a very specific answer. And mm. I mean, I talked about, um, I talked about Muslim disunity. I talked about some of the like sort of like classical, like from the Muslim side, what's usually talked about is that the Muslims were, were like lazy and all this kind of some, some of the things that you just mentioned. Um, so Muslim historians, when writing about Al-Andalus, talk about Al-Andalus as like this golden age, this golden period, but then talk about the tail end of it kind of um, really as like, you know, this, this, you know, the decadence, they had kind of gone away from Islam, sort of like the traditional religious arguments that are used to, to really frame why Muslims failed. Um, and so some of this stuff I talked about and he was like, no, 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 there's another reason. And I, he kept on pressing me on this and he was like, uh. And then finally, it's 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 it it is true that the 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 main reason why um, Al Andalus failed as I mean and failed in quotation marks because from 711 to 1492 that's an incredibly long time oh, yeah. to retain a territory. I mean, of course, there were the, the territory itself shrank, shrank, shrank until it was just Granada, just the kingdom of Granada. But demographics is the main reason. The fact that. Muslims never had a majority. There was never, um, there were large populations and they retained large populations in Valencia and in Granada and different parts of what would become Castillo. But mm-hmm. there was never a Muslim majority. And that, and, and some, some have argued that uh, at the height of the, the Cordoba and Caliphate, that perhaps they approximated half, right? Half of the population at that peak period but still, that is not a majority. If you, if you, if you constitute half of the population, you're still not a majority. Um, and with northern Christian encroachment, conquest of the south, and I, I sort of refuse to call it a reconquest, but with the conquest of uh, southern Iberia by the Christians from the north, um, what you do end up having is the replacement of and I don't mean to paint all of, of the Christians under again under this broad black brush that kind of paints them all as like evil, but there there it's were instances. It's not evil, and I wasn't trying to come across that they were evil. People can do bad things and not be evil because of you know. But very but there but I mean I, I I definitely as as a religious person I would argue that evil does exist, right? But as a historian, I would definitely. We'll have to talk about the Odyssey some other time. <laughs> well, definitely. Um, <laughs> as a historian, though, like when I think about what then happens, I mean, it's it is there. There, there were instances of barbarity on both sides. Um, although it should be noted that the the campaigns that were fought against each other, uh, and this is something that I, I, I like to to tell my students, is that 
Um, the same way that when, you know, a couple of years back when they were talking about in Afghanistan where there was like a, a period of, of warring and there was a period where people would, would not go to war. It was too cold. People would go back home. Sure. Right. So the same sort of thing happened in Liberia where there was a period, there was a war time period, right? Spring, summer, early fall. And the armies would go march out against each other. And sometimes the Christians would win. Sometimes the Muslims would win. Um, and while these two armies were, were warring against one, one another, um, the the monarchies, the royalty on both sides would would have relations with with each other. They would send emissaries. They, you know, war has often been the 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 purview of the poor and of the people at the very very bottom, right? So, like warring um, is initiated by those at the very top and was initiated in Iberia by Muslims and Christians at the very top, whether it was monarchy or nobility. But it was fought by the people on the ground. Right? It was fought by uh, vassals and it was fought by the peasantry. And that's something that like, should, should be remembered, that like, the, this, the switching off of territory and what then ends up happening to the people on the ground is, you know, whether they were Christian, Muslim, or Jewish, um, it was those people at the very bottom of society that often felt the, the, the brunt of these wars, whereas... Um, even at the capitulation agreement of 1492, um, Abu Abdullahi, uh, in, who was known as Boabdil, in, in love Boabdil. That's that's one of my uh, handles on online, actually. Or I should say, I love him. I love the story of Boabdil. I love the tale. Yeah, I mean, he then you know capitulates um, in January 2nd of 1492 and is given territory. Mm-hmm. I mean, he then becomes part of the lesser nobility. I mean, he is given territory in Granada to, he's given a villa and he's given riches and he's given an entourage. Um, and he's able to retain his wealth in many instances. He wasn't able to retain territory, but he was able to retain wealth. Mm-hmm. And it's this, this accumulation of wealth that then occurs in Iberia during the 16th century, especially with, with then what, what ha- what's going on in the Americas, which is also tied to this history that, you know, is sort of foundational for what, what goes on in Europe afterwards, which is why what happens in Iberia to the Muslim and Jewish minorities are so, it's so important to look at right now, especially in times when we are dealing with issues about race, ethnicity, and the, the sort of oppressing of religious minorities in the United States and in the West and throughout the world. So it's kind of like why I really like to think about this sort of stuff and, and what, why it's interesting to me and why I think that um, I like to try to pass it on to my students. Can I uh, ask you some, some quick uh, counterfactual questions about this, to- about why the Muslims quote unquote lost or, or were forced to leave? Um, yeah, you can, you don't have to answer. Is it possible the Muslims were too tolerant in that time Is and it place? Possible? Is it possible the Muslims in that time and place for medieval, for the end of medieval Europe, it, you know, weren't able to be sort of the extremists. Because another thing I talked about in... Uh... I mean, I'd, I'd like to problematize tolerance, right? And so I would say that, like, I, I would disagree that the Muslims are being too tolerant, right? And I, w- I would put tolerance in quotation marks. Wait, can I, re- can, I, can I get a second chance here to rephrase it? Let me rephrase sure. this. Okay, let me frame it, and then I'll rephrase it. So... You know, so I'm doing the Kingdom of Heaven commentary. And what's great is, and this is another reason it probably lost money, was people thought it was this big battle epic. But up until like a 20-minute siege of Jerusalem at the end, it's really all drama. 
Um, and it's about the main character, played by Orlando Bloom, really starting to identify with his Muslim counterparts in, um, in Salah Adin's camp way more than the Christians, who he just finds horrid, even though he is technically a Christian, but he's basically a forsworn god. Um, it's some interesting stuff going on. Um, but there's this one part where he has to try and save the civilian population against the Muslims, and it's not his fault or their fault, but it's a retaliation against a, a, yet another Knights Templar massacre. And he you know, has to take on like 10 times as many Muslims. And I talk about how, you know, from like, if you look at it like a video game when it comes to war, if you have like deep, deep fanatical belief in God or something in, in relation to your fighting, it like triples your fighting ability essentially, right? And so I guess what I'm getting at is, is it possible that you know the that the the spanish church and the catholic church just had their soldiers so riled up in fanaticism for the for the quote unquote reconquista as compared to the muslims who were just kind of trying to hold on a little bit um you know for talking about movies i always go back to a late 80s movies classic when i think about how how hard um, or how valiant uh, a defender is, especially of their home. Um, I mean, the point that I was making a little bit earlier about who was actually doing the fighting, um, when it comes down to the very, very tail end, um, it is the nobility that capitulates, right? It's like it's Abdul, uh, you know, it's Abu Abdullahi, and he's the one that gives up the territory. I mean, not everyone that's in his camp wants him to give up Granada. I mean, it was a losing battle. I don't think that Ferdinand, uh, of, you know, famously the Catholic monarchs, uh, Ferdinand of Aragon and mm-hmm. Isabella of Castile, Ferdinand wasn't a very religious dude. I mean, I, I would argue that he was the, the least religious of that particular couple. I mean, which does not say that he wasn't religious, um, but he was, he was very much concerned with his territories internationally in the Mediterranean, right? His eye was on the Muslim world and the threat that it could pose on his territories in the Mediterranean, whereas for Isabella, it was about recapturing territory. So the, the narrative of the reconquest was very much part of Isabella's narrative, right? Isabella even comes to power um, from and kind of takes power from her niece by claiming that her niece is an illegitimate child of her brother, her older brother who passes away. Mm. And part of the narrative is that her older brother, and I make this point um, in a paper I've written about reclaiming alterity and also um, some of the things how uh, Islam and, and love of Islam or, or morophilia, love of the Moors, was framed. I mean, he, one of the, the, the claims that was made against Henry Enrique was that he loved his Moor subjects, right? And that made him a bad monarch. Like that made, he was tolerant of the Muslims, and so that made him bad. That made him uh, right. uh, a, a monarch that, that wasn't really and sort of like so she comes to power on this wave of like yeah I'm gonna do what he, what he didn't have the, the you know what he didn't have the balls to do I'm gonna do I'm gonna go conquer Granada you know and Granada at the time was a vassal state right it was a vassal to uh, Castile so yep. the fact that they went and conquered their vassals and they would have paid large sums and Abu Abdullahi himself was raised at the court Right, I mean, he spent time as a hostage under Ferdinand and Isabella, mm-hmm. um, and he knew them very well. And th- so it's, it's just the sort of the 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 sort of valiance uh, nature, right? I, I go back to um, one of the opening scenes 
um, in the late 80s film The Beastmaster, right? Remember mm. The Beastmaster? I, I, I don't think I've seen it since then, but yeah, I do remember it. So, yeah, if you watch it again, what's really cool about The Beastmaster, besides it being, you know, really kind of quirky and, and you know, love of ferrets, which then became a, a nuisance throughout America, but you have uh, the, this barbarian horde comes to conquer their small little village. Um, and all of the men, the young men, are off tilling the fields, right? The Beastmaster himself is off tilling, tilling the fields. He's far away, hanging out with his homies. Um, and this horde approaches the town. And, and who's left are the old men. And in this, this, this re- I mean, I get goosebumps just talking about this thing. The old man who was the father, right? The adopted father of the Beastmaster takes out his sword. And all of these old men just get up. They're just hanging out, like shooting the shit. You know what I mean? In front of their town, the, <laughs> yep. the door. And then these, this horde, they see this, this you know, horde line up on this hill in front of their, their opening, their, their, their gate. And um, the old man takes out his sword, like nonchalantly, like, all right, fuck it. This is, I'm going to die right here. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die defending my home, right? And he draws a line in the sand, which I was like, that is bad fucking ass. He draws a line in the sand with his sword. And then picks up his sword as like he gets mowed down by a right, horse, right? right? Uh huh. You know, and he's yeah. like, "That's to me, that's really like the sort of, I mean, the way the narratives are described, and sort of like this, this the, the the, I mean, all, like all these apologias that are offered up to the fall of of Granada, right? Like Granada being, and Granada, interestingly enough, and this is a point that uh, L. P. Harvey makes in his book Muslims in Spain or Islam in Spain." 1250 to 1492. Which I've read parts of. <laughs> and Harvey makes this point that Granada was different than all of the kingdoms that had existed pre- previously in Al-Andalus because Granada was truly held together by Islamicity. Mm-hmm. Right? As this last bastion of Islam in Iberia, it was held together by everyone there being Muslim. Although... There still was a decent Jewish population there up until the end. Yeah, yeah, yes, this is true. Jews yeah. and Christians live there. Yeah. What I'm saying, though, is like that out of the different time periods in the history of Al-Andalus, and this being the very tail end of it, right. by the time you get to the establishment of the Kingdom of Granada, what's, what's the, the glue that's holding it together is Islam, mm-hmm. right? Versus um, it being the rule of one particular household or a dynasty or it being sort of like religious fervor in the two... Um, North African and Berber invasions, like Granada was a Muslim state, right? And this is what, like, what, the, like, its its reason of being was that it was the last place for Muslims to go. And I think that I would argue that, uh, especially in the 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 ways in which the Moriscos or those who were forcibly converted to Catholicism who suffered incredibly under Catholicism and incredibly under the Inquisition in, in such hugely barbaric ways. I mean, it's just, it's just when I read the Inquisition, Inquis, Inquisitorial trials, when I read what happened to these Muslims for attempting to perpetuate Islamic culture and to keep it alive in the face of, of these forced conversions, in the face of oppression, um, it, it, I cannot help but think that those who were defending this last Muslim kingdom would have defended it like that old man. Mm-hmm. I would have defended it by drawing a, land, a line in the sand. And so I wouldn't want to say that they were like either too tolerant or I wouldn't want to say that they were uh, lacking in Islamicity or lacking in religious fervor. 
Um, especially because they kept, like for many Moriscos or many of these who were forced to be converted to Christianity, they kept Muslim practice alive, not, and like, that's what I'm arguing in my dissertation, as an oppositional identity. Like they're doing it in the face of like what would, what would be insurmountable odds for their success. I mean, people who uh, would stash whatever they had of Arabic script, even sometimes when they couldn't even read the Arabic script, but they knew that the Arabic itself, these texts were important. They would stash them in their walls, knowing that if they were found out, not only would those manuscripts be destroyed, but so would they, so would they have, the, that would be the end of their lives, right? And so in the face of, of sure death, people still kept on to, to, to trinkets, to, to, to things that were like fetishized expressions of what it was to be Muslim, even when they had forgotten how to be Muslim. Mm-hmm. Which to me is like, that's, that's pretty crazy and intense. Um, not to mention the fact that Moriscos in Granada rebelled twice, um, even as late as, as 1568 to 1571. They fought a war against the Spanish government uh, because they were, were not being allowed to just be. Right? All they were pretty much asking for was, was to be. And actually one of the criticisms that, like one of the... One of the one of the ways that you could get brought up on charges under the Inquisition was by saying that the Muslims were more tolerant, right? So if you said, oh, under Muslim law, we could just be, or under Muslim law was better because Christians could be Christians, Jews could be Jews, Muslims could be Muslims. Even if you just said that, that, that could possibly be the end of your life. Hmm. Man, this is good stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, one of the reasons I love, one of the many reasons I love talking to Yark is, you know, he's the subject I love. He, and he's knows even way more than me, studied it a ton, uh, always learning something new. So I guess a couple just follow-up points to what you said. I mean, this is what's always interested me, is if it, if you look at Europe, or let's I'm sorry, if you look at the, the, the three big, you know, the big three, Europe, North, whatever, North Africa, Middle East, let's say, you know, 11th century, 12th century, etc. In theory many of the Arab civilizations were, were far more advanced from a political level to an artistic level. If you look at the specifics and it wasn't really until the 1400s or really 1500 when Europe had the printing press and gunpowder when sort of from a technological scientific, uh, innovative standpoint, things started to flip, right? The Ottoman empire was sort of the beginning of the end in some ways uh, in terms of being the dominant force and, um, you know, the, the post-Renaissance, um, post-religious war in Europe, it started, you know, I, it, it's been like a 500-year process, I guess you would say. But what's interesting to me is that the seeds were already being planted a few hundred years before, I, I think, I would say Christian, um, you know, Europe was close even to uh, Arab Muslim uh, or some Arab Muslim like countries and empires in, in terms of innovation and, and military and political might. Um, and uh, I guess what I'm trying to say and what I was trying to say with that initial question is it just doesn't make sense to me. Like until gunpowder, at least, it seems like the the Arabs should always have been winning. And that wasn't the case. And that's why I brought up the fanaticism element, because the best way, especially when as in the case of Granada or, or anywhere in southern Andalusia, when they were trying to stave off the Christians, you know, usually you get a bonus for defending your lands. Um, but I don't know. I've read some things that basically say 
that as strong culturally as Andalusia was, as Al Andalus was, as strong artistically and architecturally and theologically, poetically, religiously, etc., their political and military might was really never that great. And it was mostly lack of uh, coordination and cooperation on the Christian side that held them back from uh, taking back over Spain. I don't know if you have any response to that theory. Um, I mean, there is, there is some validity to the idea that there, there, wasn't, there wasn't unity on the Muslim side. But, I mean, the final conquest, I mean, Granada was so much smaller territorially than Castillo and Aragon. And the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabella really created the, the, the seeds of what would become Spain, right? And so Castile was huge. Castile and Leon, um, this territory was, was just vast. The vast majority of what we know now, to, we know of what we think of as Spain was Castile and Leon. Aragon um, also being a very, very large territory, kind of incorporating some of the lesser territories in the mm. north, Navarre, uh, Catalonia, all of these places would, would kind of be integrated. And so Granada was this very, very small piece. And you also have to realize that Portugal, or become Portugal, um, was also tied directly to Ferdinand Isabella um, through marriage. Or it would become through marriage right. um, in 1495 or 96, I believe, when they married off their daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> interestingly enough, when they married their daughter, one of the requirements that they had on the Portuguese crown was that they would kick out their their Jews, their Jewish oh, population. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Spain was actually the last of the Western European countries to kick out the Jews. I'll give them that. England was way ahead of the curve, as was France. Pretty pathetic. And so, yeah. I, I don't... I mean, at the same time, I mean, the the there were gunpowder empires. I mean, like... Sure. There were, you know, while, and so like one of the things that we need to do is kind of like to chop up, first off, you know, to divorce, uh, and this is really hard for even Muslims to do, is to divorce this idea of Islam from Arab, right? So like the Arabs were, were one thing and Islam was something else. I mean, if we're talking about the 16th century, while yes, there was this decline in, in Europe and Western Europe of a Muslim presence. There was an eradication right. of it. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, that was at the 15th century, well, the 16th century, uh, right smack dab in the middle of it, was the, the rise of Suleiman the Magnificent, um, who under his rule, I mean, the Ottoman Empire perhaps was at its peak, right? It was an early peak, though. It was like Spain, Spain also had the same thing, where they were briefly really powerful in the 1500s, and then quickly destroyed themselves by wasting all their wealth, which they never really recovered. By the way, if you look at a, a map of the Spanish economy since the 1500s, it's pretty much a downward slope. It's it's not pretty. And I love Spain, you know, and I root for them. But you know, I mean, what's interesting about that, which was. I mean, you, you would have to factor in, and some folks dismiss this argument, but I, I would argue that it's, it's a valid argument, is that uh, with the expulsion of the Jewish population of 1492, Spain loses much of its sort of like intellectual potential, right? Um, not saying that the, the Jewish folk in Spain were just purely intellectuals, but oh, it does dude. lose a lot. I'm all about this theory. Because the, the Ottomans were like, come here. The, the Turks They did. They, the they were like, exactly. Yeah. They were like, please come to us. Yeah. In 
from 1609 to 1614, then they then kick out this large, about 300,000 people, right? And that's kind of like a, that's like the, that's like the standard estimate. That's interesting. I've in never heard Morisco that studies before. Yeah. About, of 300,000 people that are kicked out from 1609 to 1614. Now, is that combined these, Muslim and Jewish? No, no. This is only of the uh, Morisco population. And what's uh, okay. different between the two expulsions, right? Mm-hmm. The two expulsions are different in this. Uh, in 1492, it was the folks who had not converted to Christianity. In mm-hmm. 1609, it was those who had converted to Christianity. So in, in the span of a little bit over a century, um, the rhetoric goes to, okay, we need to get rid of those who don't convert to us. And then you have the rhetoric changing to, no, we need to get rid of all of them. They are all tainted by, the, by, by Moorish blood. They're all tainted by the, the sin of, of their grandparents, right? Their grandparents who were Muslim. So by the mm-hmm. time you get to 1609 to 1614, you then get a change. And the, the, the language that's used is different. Um, and I would argue that in that, that second expulsion, they lose a lot of, their, of the manpower who fueled at least a big chunk of the Spanish economy at the time. Mm-hmm. Right, so if the 16th century is the golden era of Spanish expansion throughout the world, and then it goes into decline, the rule of Philip III really is this this pivotal period where Spain is trying to understand itself as is coming, dealing with Protestantism, uh, dealing with the wars of religion, dealing with ideas about who they are as a nation. Right, so mm-hmm. nascent Spanish nationalism is formulated. Uh, some have argued against this Muslim and Jewish other, right? Mm. But what's different, I think, is that by the time that you get to 1609, 1614, the very beginnings of the 17th century, Spain is articulating itself in ideas about racial purity, in ideas using the word race itself, um, ideas that were, were also being fueled by polemical arguments being made against uh, Native Americans um, and other populations. I mean, it should be remembered that the conquest uh, during the uh, mid-16th century of the Philippines was also fought against the Moors, right? So the Muslims in the Philippines were also called the Moors, and it was also like this religious battle. So there is something to be said about this fanaticism that was on the Christian side. But it also should be noted that religion is not necessarily taking, this, this, taking the place of, of energy, right? Of kind of like the metaphor that you're using of like the, the video game. It's not like boosting people's energy. What it's doing is solidifying identity in a very real and specific way, right? And so even, even those uh, explorers of the new world and conquerors of the Philippines, the term that's used is conquistador. Right. Right. That's the same term that is then used during the Reconquista. Right. Right? It's, it's a crusader term. Yeah. Right? It's a term that comes out of the crusades that occurred on Iberian soil. And what should be remembered, if we're going back to the, the, the crusades, if, or if you give me the freedom to do so, when we, go, when we look at the crusades, Iberian knights were not allowed to go and fight in the Holy Land because they had their own crusade to wage on Iberian soil. Yep. Right? Which is a key point in understanding how early modern Spain was identifying itself. 
Right. And it was a mixture. It was a mixture of both hatred and kind of like uh, polemical discussions of, of, of Islamicity and those who were formerly Muslim. And at the same time, it was mixed in with morophilia. Right. It was mixed in with this desire to be like them. Right. Um, and one of the things that sh- like it's, is interesting about uh, European visitors to 16th century Spain was how much of the commentary was framed at, uh, on the lines of how Moorish, foreign Spain really was. Right? Like how different Spain was in the rest of Europe. Right? And so Spain identifying itself as like this premier country during the 16th century in Europe and kind of like you know, the fact that Charles V was the Holy Roman Emperor, right? He's the Holy Roman Emperor of Europe, not necessarily just of Spain and the Americas. So he's like the Holy Roman Emperor and he himself is holding you know, these, these fairs where there's like more singing and there's <laughs> he doesn't spend a lot of time his Spanish territories, but the time that he spends, he's enamored with all things Moorish. Um, and uh, Barbara Fuchs, who's, uh, who, who's, whose book Exotic Nation really dives into this, um, really elaborates on the different ways in which there was performance of Islam or performance of Moorish culture um, by the Spanish aristocracy and how, how they were made fun of because of it. You know what I mean? The rest of Europe was like, you know, thinking it was crazy that they were doing this stuff. Yeah, not to mention uh, the fact that the Moors basically saved all the classic works of ancient Western civilization. Hello, um, it's pretty. You know, I mean, it's it's almost sad that Muslims were the the tools of their own destruction because you know they translated Aristotle and all this stuff. And and uh, of course, you had to if you were a true scholar in medieval Europe or at least close to Spain or in Spain, you had to be able to speak and write Arabic, I think, or at least some did. Um, and so, yeah, from all the way from the high philosophical level to the cultural level, it's pretty amazing. I guess what I was getting at earlier, it's like, you know, if you just take ten, from like 1086 to like, uh, let's say the, like the last couple decades of the 11th century, simultaneously you have the, I might get this wrong, which was the first Berbers, the Almoravids, or are they the second, the second wave? Um, the Murabitun, the, uh, the Murabitun were the first, the Almoravids were the second. Okay. All right. So anyways, so in that time period, you know, you, you have this wave coming in and it, it basically knocks out the Umayyads, right? I mean, it's, it's a much different approach. Well, the Umayyads had already fallen like a century before almost, so five, like 50 years before the first uh, Berber invasion. But it should be noted, too, that sure. um, we, when we're saying Berber invasions, um, or, or they were, the, the, both waves were actually invited to right. defend yep. Al-Andalus. Yep. Um, and it should be noted that, I mean, like as I said in the very beginning, when uh, Tariq ibn Ziyad crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, the, the vast majority of his troops were Berbers, and they had just been converted. Uh, Dr. Blankenship, who we spoke of earlier, uh, his book, the, the, the End of the Jihad State, talks about the very end of the Umayyad period and uh, the caliphate in Damascus and really talks about how the conquest, like the spreading thin of uh, Muslim power, the conquest of Sin, the conquest of all of these different areas, and including Al-Andalus, who would become Al-Andalus in Iberia, really changed the nature of the empire, especially, and this is kind of to my point earlier, how we, we need to separate um, Arab from Islam, especially when we're talking about Muslim history, 
that by the end of the Umayyad period, what you then have is uh, Islam spreading to vast territories where the majority of the population was not Arab. Mm. And so even with the, the Berbers who crossed over in the first initial invasion in 711, uh, they had just been converted. And it took forever for them to be conquered. They were notoriously difficult. And this is what Dr. Blankenship writes about in his book. And he does a really good job of explaining this stuff. That they were only converted to Islam and kind of incorporated first because Musa ibn Nusayr, who was the governor of uh, what was then Tunisia, or what would become Tunisia, who was the governor of North Africa for the Umayyads, was himself the child of a convert, right? Mm -hmm. So he wasn't an Arab. So the fact that he wasn't an Arab allowed him to kind of like have some sort of freedom to, to, to really allow the Berbers to come into the Muslim forces as not necessarily as total equals, but under their own leadership, which was very, very important for the Berber tribes. And the Berbers converted en masse from the top down, right? And so this conversion process and their early integration into the Muslim forces was also because they were being told there's other places to conquer, right? There's other places to go, right? And so part of what Blankenship is arguing is that when the, Muslims army, when the Muslim armies were stretching themselves to the far limits of where they could reach, what they had done was basically exhausted the ter- territories to wage jihad, mm-hmm. right? And the early Umayyad period was really fueled by this idea of expansion based on jihad. We're going to fight in the cause of Allah, and we're going to conquer territories um, in the name of Islam. And this sort of push, 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 push. And when you reach the edge of the earth, right, which was the Atlantic Ocean, once you reach the edge of the earth, there's nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's nowhere else mm-hmm. to go. And, and, and when you think about the territory, how long it must have taken for, for even t- transferring information on horseback or camelback from Spain all the way back to Damascus, it took tons of time, right? Mm-hmm. And when you stretch the empire to that sort of extreme limit, uh, there's very little left. Um, and to your point, as far as uh, how the Muslims kept science alive, I, what's interesting, I mean, I think that like you were, um, you wanted me to talk more about this stuff. And, and to me, it's just a given, right? It's like, it's, to me, it's like, well, of course they did. You know what I mean? The Muslims um, never had this sort of dichotomous relationship with science, like science being something other than part of religion. Religion was sort of like all pervasive, uh, but not religion in the sense of like, religion governing the way people fought, but rather right. that scientific knowledge and a philosophical knowledge was actually integrated into religious thought so that you get developing, so that studying a philosophy, while there were sort of like famously arguments going back and forth as to what was more important, theology or philosophy, but there was a wedding, right? There was a, the, a marriage between theology and philosophy. There was a marriage between theology and the, the advent of science or scientific knowledge and medicine. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. of these things were the natural world itself, uh, whether it was in Al-Andalus or whether it was in Baghdad or whether it was all the way in what would become India right. uh, in South Asia, wherever you traveled, um, information was being shared and, and science, medicine, philosophy were not anathema to religion. Yep. Uh, and what was, what was really, really cool – That's an important point, that, by the way. That's a very important point because that was not the case in, in Christian Europe for a long time. If science was anathema to religion and still is actually in some cases, but we won't go there. What's interesting too, and this is something I bring up with my students, is that when, when folks are talking about the five pillars of Islam and they talk about Hajj, one of the most important factors about Hajj is that 
it was Mecca became not just a place for Muslims to travel once a year on mass to make right. pilgrimage, but also a place where Muslims could go to share information. Mm. Right. So mm-hmm. you can go sit, you traveled and famously, right. So Abdullah Ansari of Herat um, famously tried to go um, on, on Hajj a couple of times and each time he was stopped, for one of the times he was stopped because the Mongols were invading. And that's a good reason to go back home if the Mongols are invading. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but wherever he would go, he would go from town to town, from mosque to mosque, from scholar to scholar, which I think is really, really cool when you think about how information was being shared, right? Mm-hmm. So you go from town to town, from scholar to scholar, from mosque to mosque, from like hospice to hospice. And in each location, you sit at the feet of learned men and women, right? Yep. And in this process, you share information across the entire Muslim world so that famously you could have uh, a Baghdadi aristocrat travel to Al-Andalus and revolutionize the way Andalusi culture dressed, uh, performed music, ate dinner. Uh, he introduced foods. And I, for, I forget his name. I, I forget the name of this, this very famous uh, Baghdadi aristocrat. But... Um, it's that sort of travel, right? So, like, we often talk about La Pax, uh, La Pax, La Pax Romana, right? Like, the, the Roman peace that allowed for commerce and growth. And we're now living in the age, supposedly, of the American peace, mm-hmm. right? So, we're living in the age of, like, this, this peace that is instituted by the hegemonic mm-hmm. power. But during the high Middle Ages, or what was called the Dark Ages in Europe, this was the Islamic peace. If you knew Arabic, you could go from Spain to China, and converse with the most learned men and yeah. women, right? You can go and sit at the feet of spiritual, theological, philosophical, medicinal scholars mm-hmm. and, like, just chill mm-hmm. and be, be one and the same. You know, and be, be, be just a Muslim amongst other Muslims, which I think is, is really phenomenal, which is also not to romanticize this sort of stuff, but... We get some of the earliest sociological works. You get Ibn, Ibn Khaldun. You get uh, people traveling. You get travel in the Muslim world because of Hajj was so important. Right. And there had to be peace. There had to be some sort of semblance of right. peace. There had to be some sort of semblance of, of tranquility for people to get from one place to right. another and to go back home. Right. And, and Hajj was a process that took months, if not years. Right? So you spent months, if not years, traveling from place to place to, to Hajj. Then you would go back home. And on your way, you would visit scholars. And on the way back home, you would visit scholars. And by the time you got back, and this, of course, was amongst the people that were, that were literate and the people who were at the very top. But this has always been, the, I mean, education is not, you know, democratic education and education of the masses is a very new phenomenon. Right. But education on mass, at least in the very rudiments of, of, of education and, and religion, right. Um, was this from very, very early on in the Muslim world. And some of the greatest universities, some of the greatest locations for scholarship um, existed in Al-Andalus, um, the same way yeah. that they existed in Baghdad and the same way they existed in Khurasan and other, other Muslim countries, other Muslim locations. In yeah, and the extent of the, of the Muslim uh, empire was both one of the greatest strengths and but ultimately one of the greatest weaknesses because of its decentralized nature and so sometimes overexpanding can backfire especially when the Europeans finally get their shit together and start creating nationalism which is sort of was a sort of a foreign concept 
um, elsewhere around the world. So they consolidated while everyone else was spread thin. This is a great way to finish because I need to go in a couple minutes here and actually make a little money tutoring. Um, so I'm about to message you via Skype a short list of reasons for, uh, possible reasons for sort of the Islamic decline, if you will, over the last you know 500 years or so, or just 500 to a thousand, depending on when you want to start the process. All right, it's coming your way. I'm gonna read it to the audience. Did you get it? Yeah, I have it. So I'm gonna read. I'm just gonna read this to the Bizzlecast audience, and if you wanted to touch on, uh, well, so I'll, I'm gonna just run down it, and then you can give it a. Uh, let's put it this way. Um, a one is not very important, and a five is critically important, and then we can maybe focus on one to sort of to sort of wrap this up for now. So I'll just go in order of, of what how it came into my head. We sort of talked about the first one, underestimating the fanaticism of Europeans during this period. You thought that was maybe what, like a two? Um, like a two or a three. Two or three. Okay. The growing power of the Catholic Church and Inquisition. Um, Inquisition, yeah, maybe like a three or a four, but the Catholic Church was already powerful during this period. Um, I would say like maybe if I, if I were to parse that out, I would give like the Catholic Church maybe like a two or a three and then maybe the Inquisition a three or a four. Would it be fair to say the Inquisition was sort of uh, evolved and came out of the Catholic Church as sort of a form of religious proto-nationalism? Would that be fair? Um, the Spanish Inquisition, yes. Right, and then you have the Italian I don't know Inquisition, that. whatever. Yeah, I would say I would say the Spanish Inquisition for sure because it was married to the Spanish state. All right, so in 1492, in one of the greatest historical coincidences or non-coincidences ever. There was the mass expulsion of Jews and Christians from Spain, and Christopher Columbus sailed west. Within a couple decades, huge sums of gold and other treasures, you know, agriculture were coming to Spain and Portugal. And, you know, by mid sort of 16th century, Spain was incredibly powerful and, and had grown, you know, many, many times in a short period. So the growing riches of European imperialism in, let's say, sort of 15th, 16th, 17th century. Is that a reason for Islamic decline, or Arab decline, at least, I should say? European imperialism, for sure, but I would put that much later. Okay. Um, I would say that, like, European imperialism in North Africa and the Middle East, um, starting with, like, perhaps uh, Napoleon's uh, entrance into Egypt uh, in the early 19th, uh, like, so 18th and 19th century imperialism, I think, is, would be important. So that sort of pushed it over the edge, if you will, after the, the for sure. Been moved. For sure. Okay. Uh, corruption. I'll give that a four or five. Four or five. Corruption and decline within the Arab empires. Um. <sighs> corruption and decline. Which, which, you know what? Let me read the next one too. I'll put it together. Uh, corruption and decline of European empires, and then the the sort of one B is de- sort of the decentralized nature of Arab uh, government structures. I think that the decentralized nature of government structures, not just limiting it to Arabs, but like Muslim government structures, um, was definitely problematic. I probably put that at a four. And then the sort of switch, I guess, around 500 years ago from sort of the Arab monopoly, not monopoly, but the Arab superiority of science kind of flipping back or, or, or flipping towards, I should say, the European in terms of gunpowder, navigation, the printing press – um, etc. Um, advances in what we would then what would later call science are important. The printing press is actually interesting. I don't know. I'd give that like a three or a four. Three or a four. 
So is the most important reason on this list? Would you add a reason or is it some combination of these reasons? Well, I would so I, I, I know this is tough. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because it's like, for me, like, There's when so I think reasons. about, when I think about an Islamic decline, it's just, it's such a big, huge area. Sure. Um, and so, whereas, so we gave the example earlier of the fall of Granada in 1492, but then at the same time, you then have the rise of the Ottomans on the opposite end of the, end of the Mediterranean. Yeah. And the Mediterranean was what it is. I mean, it means Middle Earth was the middle of the earth for Europeans, Africans, and like Europeans and North Africans for sure. Um, and folks in the Middle East, it was all like the Mediterranean Sea was the sea of civilization for these three areas. So there, so that's going on. But then at the same time, you have like the Mughal Empire flourishing in the 16th century. So I don't know. It's, it's difficult to say. And gunpowder, I mean, the Ottomans were definitely, they were a gunpowder empire. Mm-hmm. Um, Alba Hurani in his history of the Arab peoples um, talks about the Ottomans being this gunpowder empire uh, and really spreading because of gunpowder. But I think that like perhaps European imperialism also matched with nationalism, the rise of nationalism as an ideological counterforce to sort of religion being the dominant identifier. So like different ways of identifying group think or kind of like different ways of, ident- of identifying groups in general, like, like nationalism, definitely led to the rise of very specific European states. Uh, but imperialism throughout the world, right? So that, to me, is super important, alongside advances in military science. Well, I think, yeah, and just to close on this, that's what I was sort of getting at a, a minute ago when I talked about uh, the Inquisition in Spain and Italy and elsewhere as sort of, you know, assisting in the development of proto-nationalism, getting rid of I think the insane for enemies. sure. Yeah. I mean, which is what I really know about. So I, I could argue that, yes, I think that the Inquisition in Spain as an arm, which is really interesting, the Inquisition in Spain was different. It was not controlled by the papacy directly. It was controlled by the Spanish monarchs. They were given a, a dispensation to institute the Spanish Inquisition as an arm of the state. And so in essence, the Inquisition was like a, like the secret police of early Spanish nationalism. Right. Um, and so like it was because it was part of the government, right. because the inquisitors were, were kind of directly appointed. Um, they were confirmed by the papacy in Rome, but they were, they were appointed um, by the Spanish monarchs. That really led to them being like as an arm of the state, as I mentioned Mm-hmm. And really helping to police identity in very real, real ways, often at the end of a, of a stick leading to a fire. Yep. All right, man. Well, this was awesome. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> we didn't cover nearly the ground I wanted to, but that's, of course, going to happen because we love talking about these things. So um, I hope you will join me again uh, in the near future if you want. Uh, any last uh, thing you want to say? Shout out to the people. Any last thoughts? Definitely just shout out to everyone listening. Um, and I wanted to thank you and stuff for inviting me to come through and to, uh, to share some of my ideas about this stuff. I'm sorry that for some of the topics, uh, since they're not necessarily directly in my area, um, I, I'm really reluctant to kind of give definitive opinions about, but uh, for sure, if we're talking about um, Spain and uh, Islam during the tail end of the Middle Ages and the beginnings of modernity, these are things I'm really much interested in. And if you ever want to, you know, in the future, we'd like to talk about Muslim identity formation yes. and 
of this nature. That that'll be really yes. cool too. But thank you. I really I really enjoyed this. Oh, thank you. And uh, yeah, man, you don't have to apologize. It's my job to throw out crazy generalizations that I don't even always agree with just to get people talking and thinking. So we appreciate your honesty. It was great. And uh, I hope to have you on soon. Thank you, listeners, to the Bizzlecast. And we are out. Out.